For Khomeini, the flight from Paris to Tehran marked the end of 15 years in exile. For the people of Iran, the arrival of his jetliner signaled the beginning of even more radical social and political changes than have already taken place. You're listening to an NBC report from February of 1979 in the wake of revolution in Iran. Khomeini, almost unknown outside of Iran just a few months ago, returned a hero, the man who from long distance had led the revolution to topple the Shah. He called on Iranian Prime Minister Bakhtiar to resign and said all foreigners should leave the country. In an obvious reference to the United States, he said foreign advisors have ruined our culture and have taken our oil. In 1979, Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini had returned to Iran and ascended to power after Islamic organizations and student movements rose up to end the dictatorial reign of the American-supported Shah. After becoming supreme leader, he instituted a strictly Islamic constitution and went about stripping the country of Western influence. Later that year, students stormed the U.S. Embassy in the capital of Tehran, and 52 Americans were held hostage for 444 days. It set the bitter tone that would hang over Iran-American relations for more than three decades. But over the past few years, Iran has begun a profound shift, and this past July it culminated in something that's long seemed impossible. Today, after two years of negotiations, the United States, together with our international partners, has achieved something that decades of animosity has not, a comprehensive long-term deal with Iran that will prevent it from obtaining a nuclear weapon. Of course, the nuclear deal in itself is a critical part of the play here. But there is a broader play as well, which is the future trajectory of Iran's relationship with the United States. This agreement opens American diplomacy in the region and with Iran for the first time in 30 years. The nuclear deal is a microcosm of the broader transition that Iran faces. Today we'll explore how shifting demographics and internal politics in Iran led to a historic opening to talks with the West and what that might suggest about the country's future. I'm Eric Fish, and this is the Asia Society Podcast. This agreement deals with a serious issue of potential nuclear proliferation that has dogged the world's footsteps for many years now. That's Frank Wisner, former U.S. Undersecretary of Defense and Undersecretary of State for International Security Affairs. He was speaking at an Asia Society event in New York. Under this agreement, Iran has undertaken to control its nuclear program in a manner that is virtually unprecedented. It's agreed to limit its nuclear stockpile. It has agreed to <coughs> limit its production capabilities and to subject all of the production capabilities for the next 15 years to a system of international verification, the likes of which the world has never designed. I'm going to be very blunt. I take my hat off to the president and to John Kerry for what they've accomplished. Of course, not everyone shares this sentiment. For a multitude of reasons, the deal has been condemned by members of both political parties in the United States, as well as leaders throughout the Middle East and the world. But the mere fact that it happened signals something important. I think one of the most important things to understand is that this was designed originally to be transactional, to be about one issue, and that was the nuclear question. That's Robin Wright, a senior fellow at the United States Institute of Peace and a journalist who's been covering Iran for decades. She was also at the Asia Society event. 
But what's happened over the past two years is a very interesting diplomatic dynamic in which two countries that have been alienated from each other for 36 years, longer than the gap with Vietnam after a deadly war, longer with the gap with China after its revolution. And these two countries have learned how to deal with each other. Kareem Sajapur, a former Iran analyst for the International Crisis Group, who's now at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, agrees that the significance of this deal goes well beyond nuclear issues. He had this to say to an Asia Society audience. This is an historic moment. Um, when I used to be based in, in Tehran in the early 2000s, you could go to prison if you advocated dialogue with the United States. If you wrote an, uh, an op-ed in an Iranian newspaper and you advocated dialogue with the U.S., you, would go, you could go to prison. And now the foreign minister of Iran, Jabal Zarif, has probably spent more time with the U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry than any other foreign official in the world. I mean, that's, that's pretty significant. For most of the past decade, dialogue with the U.S. has been a non-starter. What you're hearing is a rally in 2007 held by Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, Iran's president from 2005 to 2013. The crowd is chanting, death to America, and no way will we have relations with the U.S. Now, it should be noted that death to America has long been a fairly hollow slogan in Iran, chanted more out of habit than genuine hatred. Ahmadinejad did, however, take anti-American sentiment to heart. In this particular speech, he went on to blame the U.S. for creating the AIDS virus. But when his final term came to an end, the moderate reformist leader Hassan Rouhani entered the stage. He won the 2013 presidential election in a surprise landslide, due in large part to capturing the youth vote. This marked a major turning point in Iranian politics. At his swearing-in in this clip via Euronews, he set the tone for his presidency. I want to end tensions, create mutual confidence and constructive interaction in order to determine our future path. Rouhani later explicitly signaled his hope to fast-track nuclear negotiations. The man he appointed as the foreign minister who would represent Iran in these talks was Mohammad Javad Zarif, a fellow moderate who was educated in the United States. Robin Wright explains that the moderate platform these men represent is very appealing to young Iranians. To them, the economic benefits of opening up to the West and striking a nuclear deal that ends sanctions is preferable to the ideological hardline that's dominated for decades. The debate in Tehran is no longer about the ideal Islamic State. It is about how you use 21st century technology to change society. And I went to see a whole array of the young startups. These are, again, kids who are uh, under, 25, under 35. And they've launched the Amazon of Iran, the Groupon of Iran, the uh, YouTube of Iran, that they uh, have opened up a whole different space. And they're very proud of the fact that whether it's in customer reviews or, or um, just the idea of e-commerce, that they have generated a place where people go express their opinions, their diversity, their complaints, and a lot of other things. It often ranges beyond the quality of a certain electronic device. So that's important in terms of understanding just where the debate is and what this younger generation is actually doing in a tangible sense. But this attitude isn't jiving with the values of Iran's older revolutionaries, a demographic that still controls the greatest levers of power. To give a quick crash course in Iranian politics, the president, who's chosen via public election every four years, has limited power in practice and mostly handles overseeing the economy. The 290-member parliament, also chosen through popular elections every four years, drafts legislation. But the supreme leader still holds the greatest power. He's commander-in-chief of the armed forces, sets the tone for foreign policy, and largely controls the judiciary. 
He also appoints half the members on a council of guardians that has authority to strike down laws passed by parliament if they're deemed incompatible with Islamic law. After coming to power in the 1979 revolution, Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini held the supreme leader position until his death in 1989. Then, his close ally and fellow hardliner, Ali Khamenei, succeeded him and remains in power today. Anti-American rhetoric remains a constant feature of Khamenei's, even since the nuclear deal. Robin Wright explains that this dynamic is creating a sort of intergenerational political conflict. Revolutions, as Crane Britton wrote in his wonderful book, The Anatomy of Revolutions, is, uh, is like an illness. that It first goes through a raging fever where you see that period of extremism and, uh, and, and bloodiness. And then it begins to move uh, too slowly often into the long convalescence, a fitful period where it goes through phases. And then the third is the return uh, gradually to normalcy. And I think that Iran is in many ways at a midlife crisis. Its revolutionaries are now in their late 50s, 60s, and 70s. The Supreme Leader turns 76 this month. The majority of the population today is under 35. Over half of the electorate today is under 35. And so there is a, not just a generation gap, but there is a sense that uh, the younger generation doesn't share all the priorities of uh, that generation of radicals that ousted the Shah and ended a monarchy that had prevailed for 2,500 years. And there is a lot at stake, uh, not just in the nuclear deal. The nuclear deal is a microcosm of the broader transition that Iran faces. But why did the nuclear deal happen now? In spite of the still defiantly anti-American rhetoric, the supreme leader and other powerful hardliners still must have given their blessing for it. Karim Sajapur explains that there are two schools of thought as to why the nuclear deal pushed through. The first school of thought says that this was merely a tactical compromise that Iran's supreme leader was forced to make because the country is experiencing a perfect storm economically. They're hemorrhaging hundreds of billions of dollars because of sanctions at a time when oil prices have collapsed. They're, they're losing tens of billions of dollars because of oil prices. And they're spending many billions of dollars trying to sustain their chief regional ally, the Assad regime in Syria. So, so some would argue that it was a tactical compromise uh, motivated by economic expediency. And then there are others who would argue, no, this, was, this is just the beginning of a, of a strategic shift after three and a half decades of, of being isolated and having a, a, an organizing principle of death to America. This is kind of now revolution 2.0 in Iran. And it's, it's now a new generation of leaders who are starting to prioritize the country's national interests before revolutionary ideology. I think that the reality is that both of those answers are right and that you do have, you know, for some individuals in Tehran, and I would put the Supreme Leader into this category, it, it is a tactical compromise. He's not interested in having an amicable relationship with the United States. But I think for others, President Rouhani, Foreign Minister Zarif, if they could push a button and, and, and start to, to change Iran's relations with the outside world, I think they would do so. So this is a debate which is going to play out over many years in Iran. While Iran may desperately need the huge influx of cash that the easing of sanctions will bring, Sajapur adds that the economic windfall may not be in the long-term interests of the supreme leader and other hardliners. I'll say that the Iran's supreme leader, Ali Khamenei, I think is the most brilliant Machiavellian politician in today's Middle East. He's the second longest-serving autocrat after the Sultan of Oman. 
And his modus operandi has been leader for 26 years, is to wield power without accountability. And in order to do that, he needs a president who has accountability without power. And he doesn't want to have a, a, a strong, popular president. He's systematically weakened all of the previous presidents. So I don't think it behooves him for this major cash influx to come in and for Rouhani to start to, to deliver economically and people get very happy and they see that that kind of more moderate, pragmatic school of thought has been what's delivered. And, and Khamenei's kind of hardline school of thought uh, has been shown to be a failure. In February of 2016, Iran will hold elections for its parliament, which is presently dominated by conservative hardliners. At the same time, elections will also be held for Iran's Assembly of Experts, a group of 86 aging clerics that will decide the next supreme leader when Ayatollah Khamenei dies. Robin Wright says that earlier this year in Tehran, she spoke to the head of a nine-party coalition of hardline groups. He told her that the nuclear deal could create up to a 25% boost in voters who are sympathetic to Rouhani and the moderate policies he represents. For a decade, the hardliners have had a lock on politics, all three branches, and that, that hold was only uh, begun to be broken with the election of President Rouhani in uh, 2013. Now you have a second branch of government that is up for grabs with parliament. And so there is a sense that the, that the nuclear deal um, will also determine what happens politically. Not just whether President Rouhani will have some openings to engage in other reforms, but who actually is uh, holding parliament and is able to dominate the political space. And so for many of the hardliners, the nuclear deal is dangerous less for the terms of the deal itself than what it means for their own political future in Iran. And of course, they fear that President Rouhani is another uh, President Gorbachev, that his openings to the outside world or his domestic reforms in perestroika and glasnost are, the, are similar to what President Rouhani is trying to do now. And of course, perestroika and glasnost led to the unraveling of the Soviet Union. So there is that um, again, this, this sense that this moment in history is not just about the nuclear deal, but about the fate of the revolution as that generation of revolutionaries begins to enter their, the final phase of their role in Iran uh, and is replaced increasingly by a younger generation with a different agenda. Wright adds that the demographic trend toward favoring more moderate policies doesn't necessarily mean that moderation will prevail. We shouldn't rule out the very important and pervasive impact of the deep state. The invisible forces in the particularly the intelligence agencies and the judiciary that uh, continue to intimidate. It's striking how much the deep state has eaten its own revolutionaries. When you look across at the political elites, President Khatami, the great reformer, can uh, no longer travel outside the country. He's not allowed to be quoted in the local media. There's almost no generation of revolutionaries that hasn't paid a price in a personal or in immediate family sense. And the revolution does not broker dissent even more from ordinary Iranians. And so there is the fear factor that plays out. What is so striking about Iran today is that it is a dynamic society full of debate, full of naughty political humor, despite the influence and the hold of an intimidation of the deep state. Wright also says that while Iran is in desperate need of money to develop its infrastructure, it's possible that much of the cash brought in from the nuclear deal will end up in unsavory hands. 
One group that could benefit heavily is the Revolutionary Guard, a 120,000-person military and internal security force loyal to the Supreme Leader. The Guard has been active in suppressing dissent and also plays a major role in the economy, where it controls monopolies in many industries. Money could also potentially go towards causes in the Middle East that are unfriendly to U.S. interests. One country that's particularly concerned is Israel, a rival of Iran's that's strongly opposed to the nuclear deal. It's also true that even during the hardest times, whether it was the Iran-Iraq war or the various uh, confrontations between Hamas and Israel or Hezbollah and Israel, that uh, Iran's allies and the Quds Force its special forces uh, unit, have never been short of funds, never have been in need. They've always gotten what they wanted. Will they get more? Quite possibly. Um, none of us know. And as to the question of whether the young will have an influence, I suspect they won't in any decision-making process, but they will when it comes to public noise and the electoral process, as skewed as it can be. Kareem Sajapur agrees that the implications of the deal are far from a black-and-white, good-or-bad proposition. You know, look at who it, who it is in Iran who is very happy these days. It's civil society. It's the younger generation that want to be integrated with the rest of the world. And who is most concerned are the hardliners who have really thrived in isolation. So I think in the, in the domestic Iranian box, it's, it's net positive. In the regional box, I think it's the one that's, uh, that's somewhat more concerning. That, uh, you know, if Iran's existing regional policies, Iran's existing regional policies have been quite consistent over the last four decades. And I think it's fairly unlikely that they're going to dramatically change in the coming months, but they're going to have uh, many more billions of dollars to pursue those policies. These deals are never 100% positive, 100% negative. There's, there's good and, and, and there's bad. And, and frankly, all of you who have studied the contemporary of the history of the Middle East know that um, you know, the Middle East, they say, is a graveyard for empires. It's also a graveyard for forecasters. That's all for today. If you want to hear more episodes, you can go to asiasociety.org slash podcast, or you can subscribe on iTunes. And if you like what you hear, please leave a review. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Asia Society. Our music is by Thiri Mangmang and his ensemble, Shui Manta Bin Zapwe. They were performing live at Asia Society as part of a season of Myanmar. I'm Eric Fish, and we'll see you next time on the Asia Society podcast.